Hi, my name's Madalena Kay, and I'm the host of the podcast AI and You, produced by Europod in partnership with Podium Podcast, Agence France Press, and Cora Media. In AI and You, we deal with the history of AI and how it is having an impact on our lives. From social relationships to employment, from climate change to wars and security. Is AI changing our world for the better or the worse? Come and check it out for yourself. Subscribe to AI and You wherever you listen to podcasts. I think their success lies in the fact that they create very simplistic and easy word views and explanations to a very, very, very complicated world that we are currently living in, to all the crises we are experiencing. And in this way of thinking, it's, in my opinion, always easier to go back what we already know or what we once knew, even if those things weren't necessarily good for us. And in a way, this is also true for like gender stereotypes and gender norms. Over the past few months and years, across Europe, far-right parties have gained electoral support. From recent elections in Italy and Sweden to France, Germany, Spain, Poland or Hungary, a conservative wind appears to blow over the old continent. One narrative all these far-right parties have in common is a return to traditional gender norms. But why are these narratives so successful and what does this tell us about the relationship between younger generations, social class and conservative worldviews? Today, on Europe Talks Back, the link between modern sexism and the conservative backlash happening in Europe. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We'll be right back. My name is Zsófi Borsi. I'm from Budapest, Hungary, and uh, I am the founder and editor-in-chief of the Lazy Women English-speaking feminist media platform. Zofi is from Budapest, but she lives and works in Paris. It's from that city that she coordinates the Lazy Women newsroom and freelancers. And this is her story about how the magazine was born. First, the name of Lazy Women came from my ex-boyfriend, calling me lazy in an argument, which I found <laughs> very disturbing. And I went out with my girlfriends and we kind of talked about this. And then this idea of the Lazy Women brand came about. Sophie and her friends met in a pub. And as she said, the first idea was simply a brand, a brand for T-shirts. First, we wanted to make provocative t-shirts but then we actually had so much to say that a year later in lockdown when we had a bit more time to think and reflect we started the blog lazywomen.com where we publish think pieces and personal essays from women from all over the world uh, mainly from eastern and central europe 
So what type of articles does Lazy Woman publish? Each of these essays or articles take a very personal issue or problem and then enlarge it in the political and sociological sphere. I asked Sophie to what extent she understands Lazy Woman as an answer to sexism and society. I think it is fully an answer to that because, in fact, Lazy Women was a way of reclaiming a negative phrase that was used to describe me and my girlfriends. And it really made me angry about, you know, I just typed into Google like lazy women. I found all these articles about how to spot that your girlfriend is becoming lazy or five types of women you should avoid. And then the top was always lazy. And I think there is like such a big stigma around taking time for ourselves and um, resting and also just like valuing ourselves, not necessarily as someone who is always, always giving, but someone who's also taking up space. Sophie says that she experienced a lot of sexism in her teenage years. Yet she also explains how quote-unquote new forms of sexism came into her life at a later stage. I went abroad for university to the UK and after that I came back to Hungary. I did my first internships and that's where I think a new form of sexism became visible to me, sexism in the workplace. I was often put into this role of, um, you know, like the studious, quiet girl who will just take notes and um, the more kind of political or more interesting topics and questions were given to, to guys around me. And I, yeah, I called out the leadership on that. That was kind of my first new experience of, of a, I think like this was a form of sexism. I did flag it, but I didn't flag it in the context of sexism because it wasn't something, you know, I couldn't just say this because it was more feeling or it was more something that I noticed later on as well. As I was leaving that workplace and they were hiring new interns, it was a similar setup. And I heard the male manager saying a comment before even meeting any of the interns that, okay, the, the girl will get the note-taking jobs and then the guys will be working on political issues. This was at the political think tank. So I think the problem often with sexism that is not direct. So it's also, I think, important that women recognize these like small experiences and connect the dots. But when you're alone in this situation, and of course, in a political think tank, I was also the only girl intern in a big group of guys. So yeah, sometimes it's hard to, to stand up for yourself when you're alone. Other times, sexism can be quite direct, for instance, at home. Then I experienced sexism in a more private format in my past relationships. That was more related to the traditional roles that men and women should perform in the private sphere. Expectations mainly around cooking or looking a certain way and then receiving sexist comments when I wasn't performing those well enough. 
The return to traditional gender norms is a key component of the resurging far-right and conservative parties across Europe. The message and narratives these political forces bring up stands at odds with the mission of lazy women. So eventually I asked Sophie why she believes a return to traditional gender norms is taking place today across Europe. I think their success lies in the fact that they create very simplistic and easy word views and explanations to a very, very, very complicated world that we are currently living in, to all the crises we are experiencing. And in this way of thinking, it's, in my opinion, always easier to go back what we already know or what we once knew, even if those things weren't necessarily good for us. And in a way, this is also true for like gender stereotypes and gender norms. We'll be right back. Gefinov is a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Gothenburg. Her research explores polarization over feminism, backlash against feminism and populist radical right support in Europe. Gefion analyzes conservatives' counter-reaction to feminist mobilizations and advances in gender equality. Some of the questions she provides answers to in her most recent research papers are who is most likely to counter-react to feminist mobilizations and how is this manifested politically through vote choice? What triggers such backlash against feminism and which aspects of feminism or gender equality provoke backlash. So this is me speaking to Gefionov. Gefion, we brought you in because you're an expert on modern sexism. You produced relevant research this year with fellow colleagues of yours. I'd like to start from a really basic question, if you don't mind. How can we define modern sexism today? Modern sexism nowadays is defined as the denial of gender discrimination. So The person who is modern sexist might not necessarily say that he or she is against gender equality, but they think that gender equality is not a problem anymore. So we, we have gender equality in society, and therefore we don't need any further gender equality measures. And so modern sexists oppose any further measures for gender equality policy, but not necessarily because they are against gender equality, but because they say we already have gender equality. So... What are the factors that can explain modern sexism in Europe today? So in general, there is a research field called cultural backlash. And this is not particularly about sexism or modern sexism, but more about social conservative values in general. So that could be about being anti-immigration or being against feminism or maybe against environmentalism. All these cultural or what we call social cultural values that have been advancing in society. When people are against these and are conservative in these kind of ways, um, this is often explained nowadays by cultural backlash theory. And cultural backlash theory argues that old people are most likely to be conservative because old people grew up in a society where values were different. I mean, maybe 50, 70 years ago, we had different values in our societies that were at least the most prominent values that the majority of people would have. So once they become older and, and values in society change, they feel like it doesn't fit with them anymore, basically. And so these people are the ones who backlash. So that is one big theoretical field. And then there's uh, psychology research. 
that looks at sexism more in in correlation to other identity traits or or maybe personality traits as well um, and psychological traits. So they find, for instance, that right-wing authoritarianism is related to sexism or social dominance orientation. So when you think of society in, in hierarchies, that one group is dominant to another group or superior to another group, this kind of attitudes and ways of thinking are related to sexism. All right. Now, digging into your research, what makes it stand out, I think, is that, as you define, it's a cross-country European-wide analysis of modern sexism. Can you explain to us, really methodologically, what you did? We use a survey that is called European Quality of Government Index Survey, and this survey is fielded uh, in all European Union countries. And in this survey, we had a question and the question goes, to what extent do you agree with the following statement? And then the statement is, advances in women's rights have gone too far because they threaten men's and boys' opportunities. Then we ask people to what extent they agree on a one to 10 scale. We are lucky because we can field this in a survey that is representative for all European Union countries. But Even more, it is representative at the regional level. So regions within each country are represented in this data set. So we can actually look at regional effects on how people respond to this measure. Okay, so we have this big survey. What are the main results and how do you interpret them? So the most important result is that young men are most likely to agree with the statement that advances in women's rights have gone too far and that they threaten men's and boys' opportunities. And I think what is important to say is that the difference between young men and old men or young men and women, the difference is not too big in terms of the effect, but the trend is what is interesting. Because usually we would think that we would see a different trend. Usually we would think that young people are more progressive, um, young people are less sexist, also young men should be more supportive of advances in women's rights. The trend is opposite in our data, and this is what we found most interesting and what is the main finding. And then as we went on to investigate this finding, we find that this effect is strongest in, in regions where unemployment has been increasing in the year before. Second, we find that men who distrust institutions, so like public institutions, governmental institutions, are most likely to, to agree with our statement. So they are most likely to be modern sexist. So our main theory about how we want to explain or how we try to explain these results is this perception of zero-sum games, that men perceive that women win and men lose when we advance women's rights, rather than that society wins as a whole. Increases in unemployment are, are a good way to operationalize these zero-sum games, because if you have a larger or, or stronger job competition, then it's clear that one person will get a job and another person will not get a job. So it's clear that if a woman gets a job, maybe a man loses from it in their perception. So seeing that this effect is stronger in regions where unemployment has been increasing and where young men might perceive competition from women as unfair or as to their own disadvantage, then this effect is stronger, basically. So, Gefjun, this is not the only piece of research you conducted this year with other scholars. You looked also in what we could define the link between modern sexism and voting behavior in Sweden. Can you explain to us what you discovered? So the other study that I, I published this year was on Sweden, as you said, and I, I compared election studies data from 2014 and 2018 
So the most recent elections are not covered by the study. I have a theory that conservative gender attitudes should play a role in voting behavior. But at the same time, it's not the most important concern that people have, right? People care about the economy, their own health care, these kind of things that happen in your life every day is something that people care about when they vote. So what I theorize is that they care about it when the topic is really strongly debated in, in the public. Right. And this is what you call gender issue saliency. So what events took place between the two elections in Sweden that substantiate gender issue saliency? And what happened in Sweden, like in many other places, is that the Me Too debate was really big. And women's marches and like these things that happened after 2016 and 2017 created a very strong public debate about feminism in Sweden. After that, some more things happened in Sweden in this way. So there was a new law that redefined rape and what is considered as rape and punished for rape. It was called a new consent law. How do we define consent? Also, there was a very big scandal in the Swedish Academy, which is the, the institution that decides on the literature Nobel Prize. They had a sexual assault scandal. So this was very big on the news just before the elections in 2018. So what I argue is that between 2014 and 2018, all of these things created this very strong feminist public debate. Right. So let's go back to your theory. In that moment, feminism or, or other gender attitudes should matter to people who vote, especially who, to those who don't agree. Not agreeing with feminism in Sweden is quite against the norm because Sweden is so advanced in gender equality and feminism. So it's not really covered by the political mainstream parties. And the party that does cover this aspect in an explicit way is the populist radical right party, and that is the Sweden Democrats. While they do say that they are in favor of gender equality, um, they are against many things that have been advanced in terms of gender equality policy over the last years and decades. So for instance, they don't want any specific policies on how parental leave should be divided, for instance. So they are still much more progressive than other populist radical right parties. But in the Swedish context, they are the ones that would represent someone who is against further feminist policies. So I argue that in this context, where this debate was very strong, people who have very conservative gender attitudes were more likely to vote for the radical right. And my data shows that before this debate was so strong, whether someone had conservative or progressive gender attitudes didn't really matter so much in their decision to vote for the radical right. But after all of these debates in 2018, it did play a role. And if you were more conservative, you were more likely to vote for the Sweden Democrats on your gender attitude, which is new. Like usually we explain radical right voting by anti-immigration attitudes or political distrust and sometimes by people's economic situation. But there's not so much research looking at other attitudes and showing that even in Sweden, conservative gender attitudes can be linked to radical right votings, at least when the debate is dominated by this topic, is, I think, quite important. Fair enough. I was wondering, can we say something from a cross-country perspective, although this research and analysis focuses on Sweden? Sweden is a context where gender equality is very advanced compared to other European Union countries. And if we see this in Sweden, then we should see a similar pattern in other countries. And in other countries, maybe gender attitudes might not vote for the radical right party because they might be another party who represents them. But we should see that conservative gender attitudes translate into voting behavior for whichever party represents these stands. If this translates into voting behavior, of course, it influences political outcomes. Gefion, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on modern sexism with us today. Sure. Thank you for having me.
We'll be right back. You can follow Gefjonov at Gefjonov, that's G-E-F-J-O-N-O-F-F, on Twitter. To read her research papers, you can visit her website at gefjonov.com. To take a look at the work of Sophie and her colleagues, please visit www.lazywomen.com. And this is it for this week's episode of Europe Talks Back. The producer of Europe Talks Back is Antoine Lheureux. Sound design is by Jeremy Bouquet. Editing and mixing by Jeremy Bouquet and Thomas Kosberg. Promotion and marketing by Katrin Skapadas. My name is Alexander Damianorici. As of next week, Europe Talks Back switches release day. So we'll be back next Friday. 